We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place. That's not a town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Hello and welcome to the Normal Cast. This is episode 19. It is September 17th, about, uh, shoot, about 8 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. On today's show, we have Jeff Jackson and Chris Parker, both from Rock and Ice. Jeff is a longtime root developer and climber, and Chris is, well, he just happens to be my roommate and uh, climbing partner, Jeff, so, so I invited him to be mesmerized by podcast magic. But before we get to that, I suppose I better apologize for being late with this one. The main reason I've fallen behind, not just on this episode, but basically on everything to do with the normal cast, with your emails, with Facebook stuff, with sending out stickers, uh, website upkeep, whatever, is because life has simply intruded a little bit. Um, I was forced to move out of the Rocky Mountain bunker, my little cabin in the woods, my little mountain cabin. And uh, so I had to move into a new place this week. And I have roommates now, and I live in town where other people live, so I can cavort with them. The uh, cabin, which was a dream of mine, living in a mountain cabin since I was an adolescent growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, was a great time. It also turned out to be a really good studio. Um, I didn't really know this until I started doing it in this room. You can probably hear a little bit more high-end reverb back there. But big fat logs in kind of a dense cluttered area actually turns out to be a pretty good studio. So I'll be working with this one, but I will miss it and the bears and everything else up there. And I also went climbing last weekend, um, two days ago, instead of editing the new podcast because, well, frankly, if I let this take precedent over climbing, then who am I and what am I? And nobody will be impressed with that. And in fact, if anybody out there is listening to this podcast, Instead of climbing, you know, not listening to it because you can't be climbing right now because you're driving or working or mowing the lawn or vacuuming or whatever other thing that you have to do to get through life, then if you're skipping climbing to listen to this podcast, well, frankly, I will take some of that donation money and pay someone in your town to come to your house and slap you in the face. So anyway, what difference does it make that this is late? It is a self-imposed deadline. It's not something that anybody out there is forcing me to do. But some of you have made generous donations, and my listenership has grown, which I really appreciate. And I just feel like, well, if I'm going to take this seriously, I need to present a professional sort of show. I want to present a professional face to you guys and... It's just, you know, it's important that I keep this thing up. So don't think that I'm, you know, letting myself go and not shaving and just sitting here poking at my belly button. I'm working hard. Keep this thing alive. Keep it going. And I do appreciate all the support you guys have given me with emails, with Facebook, with donations, with everything that you guys have done for me. And the main thing I will reiterate is that I just need you all to tell your friends and get some other folks listening because uh, that's what's super important to me. 
And as the community grows, this thing will get better. However, keep in mind, it is a DIY sort of thing, which I think is one of the appealing things about it. Look that up if you don't know what that stands for. And as a DIY operation with a single staff member, sometimes shit is not going to get done on time. So we're all going to have to live with that until, you know, I get my own studio with my interns and everything else. So before we get to the show, which I think is a really good one, there's a piece of business, a couple pieces of business I'd like to take care of. Um, I would like to promote two upcoming events here in the Intermountain West that I am sort of connected with. Um, unfortunately, they're both on the same day and they are several hundred miles apart, so I will not be able to be at both of them. The first one, which I am skipping, is uh, National Public Lands Day and the Friends of Indian Creek. Uh, I'm a board member of the Friends of Indian Creek are sponsoring a work day down in the creek. On September 29th, Saturday, you guys, if you're down there, can meet up in that big old parking lot in front of Supercrack Buttress, which everybody hates, but I love, and I think you actually do too, when you pour your gear out on the nice clean pavement, when you've got a nice level spot to park your van in the middle of the night, you love it too. Anyway, meet up there about 9.30 to 10. They're going to divvy up some work and go out and do some projects, including one that includes uh, helping the Reds who own the Dugout Ranch right there in Indian Creek, which is a lovely bridge that we're mending between us and them. So go on and help out. Show your love for Indian Creek. There's a barbecue to follow, and I believe there's some entertainment of sorts. And the other one on that same day, September 29th, Saturday, September 29th, is the Rifle Cleanup a.k.a. the Ronde Spew, which has been resurrected from the dead. It uh, went by the wayside back in August, and now it's back for I don't know how many years they've been doing it, but a long time. So come to Rifle. Mostly you just climb, pick up a little bit of garbage. There'll be some work projects if you're into it. Uh, beer and food afterwards will be provided by Avery Brewing. They also have some free camping. We got the group site, and there'll be a big partay up in the community house. So come along and have some fun and show the city rifle that the climbers are the good guys. And I will actually be attending that one. All right. So on to the show on today's show, like I said, we have Jeff Jackson. Jeff is one of the best storytellers that I've ever heard. And I guess I kind of knew this, but I didn't know it until he sat down in front of me. And I had this idea that the show would be about doing first ascents because Jeff is, without a doubt, the most prolific first ascensionist that I know. And I tried to steer it along those lines, but but frankly, Jeff, uh, you know, he just uh, loved to tell stories. And like my dad used to say about me, you put a quarter in him and you can't, you know, you can't get him to shut up. But in this case, it was in a good way. Chris and I basically just kind of sat there and laughed and listened to him with big smiles on our faces and and I think you too will sit there with a big smile on your face when you listen to it. Also, I've tacked on the end. So listen all the way through today, folks, because I've tacked on a little jam session that Chris and Hefe and I had after the show, which I think you will enjoy as a little biscuit, a little treat at the end to dip in your podcast coffee and savor. A couple tunes by Chris Parker, who's on guitar and singing a couple tunes that Hefe and I had never heard before. We sat down that night. Um, I'm on the bass. Hefe's on the blues harp. 
Speaking of coffee, I decided to leave the commercial off at the beginning because I've been wanting to record a new one. I think that one's getting old. And I just haven't had time like everything else. So remember that uh, our sole sponsor is Defiant Bean. And you can order and get a discount on Defiant Bean Coffee. And the normal casket's little money by going to defiantbean.com and entering Enormo at the checkout. Get a couple bucks off. Or if that is confusing to you, um, go to the website, enormacast.com, and click on the Defiant Bean banner. And it will give you instructions while you're there, click on the Help Out tab at the top of the page there and see what you can do to keep this thing going. I appreciate any effort towards that. Enough of my talking. It's been going on and on and on. So let's just get to the show. Jeff Jackson making it up as he goes along. Okay. I can drink beer, no problem. Huh? Totally, yeah. Right, cool. For sure. Right. Yeah, this is the internet, man. Sweet. You can drink beer until you fall <coughs> off your damn chair if you want. All right, welcome to the normal cast in the new studio, which frankly isn't as cool as the old studio, but I'm going to have to get used to it. <laughs> I want to welcome Jeff Jackson. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Going well, thanks. Good. And uh, Chris Parker, my uh, heterosexual life partner. <laughs> how's it going? Actually, he's just my roommate. <laughs> Both of you guys uh, work at Rock and Ice Magazine, uh, which is right here in Carbondale. So I invited these guys over because, um, basically, because Jeff is the most prolific and possibly, I may use the word, obsessed first ascensionist that I've ever met. And uh, and Chris is here because you actually have climbed with Jeff on some of these at first ascents. And uh, I thought we'd have a conversation uh, today about maybe how that transpired that you got so into that Jeff, that you became this climber that frankly um, living here in the Valley for uh, how long have you lived here in Carbondale? That's coming on seven years, seven years. And I don't think I've ever run into you at like one of our established local climbing areas. And yet you are climbing basically like every chance you get and every weekend and, but you're climbing in places that you're developing yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And um so I don't I don't run into Jeff at Rifle. I don't uh I don't see him anywhere else because he's out in the hinterlands putting roots up. So I've run into you at your cliffs, at the places that you've developed, but that's about it. Um so I wanted to have you on the show because uh you know, it takes a different mindset and a different approach to climbing to being a, a first ascensionist. And as you guys being in the media and Jeff you being a, a climber for uh, a really long time, what do you think like the percentage of people who are climbers and also are putting up new routes. I mean, obviously, it's a pretty small percentage. What would be your guess, I mean, off the top of your head? Maybe 2%, something like that. Right. Not not many people seem to be into the process that's uh, required for putting up new routes. Uh, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, a small percentage, for sure. But, Jefe, didn't you tell me... Um like when you started climbing, though, you guys built your crags, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I started in uh, 1977 in uh, just a little town in Texas, kind of outside of Plano, Texas. And, uh, you know, there was no climbing. Basically, I just uh, picked up a book in a library and, uh, you know, I got... I got busted for making a, uh, a hockey puck out of a urinal. I took a urinal apart and, and me and some of my friends discovered that this urinal would produce this awesome,
awesome hockey puck. So we were in the bathroom one day and we started playing a hockey game. I what got, do you mean? <laughs> where did the hockey puck come from? It's like a part of a urinal. If you look at it, if you look at a urinal, you can like untwist this one part that makes a perfect. You're puck. not talking about the little thing that they set. No, that's here. a urinal mint. Oh, okay. This is not. You know, this is a metal part. We took that apart. The teacher heard us playing in the bathroom and she uh, she busted us and and gave us a book report that we had to write. That was our like uh-huh. punishment for taking the urinal apart. And uh, and the book that I picked was uh, it was Dougal Hastings in High Places. And I was just like, shit, this is rad. I want to. I want to climb something. Out of the library in Plano. In Plano, Texas. Nice. There was in high places. There were some of Bonington's books, like the old school 1970s expedition books. But in, in I high, wonder how those ended up there. Yeah, I don't know. It's, huh. it's pretty weird. Right. Yeah, it's pretty weird. But, uh, yeah, uh, I read Dougal Hassan's book, and I was just like, this is rad. I want to, I want to climb. You know, there's not a war going on, which would have been – the next raddest thing to a person in sixth grade. Right. But uh, there was like some scruffy little cliffs that we started developing. And, and that's really, I think where the, the first ascent mania got kicked off is just having to create our own climbing uh-huh. down in Plano, Texas. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you guys, so you're, you're actually one of the things you are associated with Texas climbing. Um, how, how long did you live there before you, uh, before you moved on. Well, let's see, I was born in Paris, Texas, and then I lived there until I, I left for college in, uh, it would have been ni- 1982. I graduated from high school, went to college in New Hampshire for four years, and in 86, I came back to Texas and uh, entered law school at the University of Texas in 87. Uh-huh. So from 87 till about seven years ago, yeah, I was in Texas. Okay. Because mm-hmm. the, first, the first time I sort of uh, saw your name or, or knew, knew what you were up to was some of the stuff down in Pachero Chico. Because mm-hmm. you were one of the early developers down there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I saw an article, I want to say, and it was in Rock and Ice, I believe, or was it in Climbing? I can't remember. Probably anymore. Climbing. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the you were on the Sendero Luminoso, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was the, the first ascent of that. That's right, yeah. With our friend Pete Peacock. That's right. Yeah, you know Pete? Yeah, of course. No, oh, cool. From Gunny. Yeah, yeah of I went course. To school down yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So. Yeah, Pete and uh, Kurt Smith and I actually it, the project started off with a guy named Terry Christensen. We were we were bouldering on a uh, on a wall in Austin that uh, you know there there was no such thing as as climbing gyms, but people were just starting to make woodies, and we were outside, and randomly this guy from Canada, Terry Christensen, drove by and he saw us bouldering on this homemade wall, and he stopped and pulled over and he said, you know, is there any big walls around? And you know, I'd been down to the Potrero a couple of times, and there was a massive, fucking huge limestone wall that. You know, if you've ever been to Potrero, you can see it right from the campground there. As right. soon as you walk in, there's this huge 3,000-foot face of limestone. And so I just said, yeah, there's, I know a big wall. It's about five hours away in Mexico. And this guy said, uh, well, if you, uh, if you teach me to climb big walls, then I will bring down 2,000 feet of rope and all the bolts that you need for a first ascent. I was like, okay. And this guy, Tony Fawcett, and I were like, all right, sure, you know, thinking that he would never show up. But he, like, <laughs> left, 
and went to, to North Carolina, got the rope, came back with like Petzl Long Life half inch bolts, buckets full, tons of them. And, uh, and we taught Terry to climb big walls by doing the first seven pitches, first five pitches of uh, Sendero Luminoso, okay, 700 okay, feet. Okay. We, we've just like launched into this thing. So <laughs> let me back up here. <laughs> so you're, uh, you're bouldering on a woody in where? Austin, Texas. In Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. And a Canadian drives by. Canadian dude, yep. And <laughs> by the time he leaves... He's going to get 2,000 feet of rope and buckets of bolts, and you guys are going to go climb in, in Petro Chico. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and he did. He went, he came back, and we did a, uh, we did a route that, that a lot of people don't know uh, even exists. It's kind of parallels Sendero Luminoso. It's like an A4, you know, mm-hmm. big wall. Huh. And it goes to the ledge there uh, about 700 feet up. And Terry, as it turns out, was a musician, an awesome folk musician that had won a Juno, which is the the Canadian equivalent to the, what is the... The, the Grammys. The Grammys, yeah. yeah it's a Canadian right. Grammy. And just a badass musician. So we like got up onto the ledge and we told the people down in Petreo Chico, we're going to like play a song. And so we like got out these radios that Terry also brought in and we like set them up as speakers and we jammed up there on the ledge and we, we focused a headlamp so that we could like make, (laughs) you know, like people shapes on the wall, like Uh towering giant people shapes. And then about an hour later, we saw a fire truck like roll up with the lights going on and, and the Mexicans down in the town thought that we needed to be rescued. <laughs> but they had no idea how to rescue us, so they just showed up with the fire truck and and sat there and and uh, just watched us. You know, we yelled down as best we could to explain to them we were okay. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, that was the that was the first part of Sendero Luminoso. What what became that route? What became? Oh wow! How old were you? Oh man, you know I'm terrible at, at dates. I don't even couldn't tell you. Nineteen. 20s. 80s, late 80s, not early 90s. I think we we did the route probably this is probably like 92, and then Kurt Smith came down to Petrero, and he was also keen on uh, on doing a big wall. So Kurt and I hooked up with Pete. Pete Peacock was working at the gym in Austin at the time, and he just was up for an adventure. So he naively said that he would just jug the lines and bring us food and tortillas and beer for as long as we put up the route. So Kurt and I put up the route. Pete wore out several pairs of shoes, jugging and bringing us beer and, and food and stuff. And yeah, I think we spent like 22 days on a ledge, you know, it was an amazing experience and, uh, an established Sendero Luminoso. Yeah. A beautiful, like 15 pitch line. So how'd your, uh, how'd your law degree turn out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh you know, after uh after a few months in law school, um and just noticing how all of my peers would have to argue for ten to twenty minutes just to decide where to have lunch, you know, I realized that I fucking hate these people. Like I did. I, I was like I thought to myself I really do. I want to to have a career where these are going to be my peers. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I hate to say it, cause that sounds mean, 
really. My dad's a lawyer. I think he's awesome. I really, really love my dad and I get along with him. But these guys were a little bit different. Uh, and, you know, and besides that, there was the whole uh, Socratic method where you would be asked, you know, that the professor would turn to you like a complete novice. And he would say, well, what's your opinion? Do you think old Shep should be compensated for, you know, the loss since he was at the kennel, A1 kennels? And I'd be like, I don't fucking know. You're the, <laughs> you're the professor, man. You know, it's like. You tell me. It really seemed like a really dumb way to teach. But at the same time, they were teaching us, I realized, to to pretend like you knew what you were talking about, even when you don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so that was um, that was a turn off. And then finally, uh, one day in what was called a TQ session is where we were, we were being taught to write like lawyers, you know, mm-hmm. put write in quotes. This lady um, who was the teacher started on a, uh, a kind of a, a lecture where she said, you know, look around you. So look to your right, look to your left. These are going to be the leaders of our country in four years. These are going to be the leaders of the community. These are going to be the the presidents and the senators and the congressmen. These are going to be the people that everyone's looking up to. And I started laughing and I couldn't stop. It was one of those nervous like laughters where you're just like, (laughs) just like out of control laughter because I was one super stressed Two, I did think it was kind of amusing that, you know, what she was saying. These are going to be the like the badasses of our community. And, you know, a lot of it was nerves, of course. And so she stopped the class, took me outside, and she's like, you know, we had to go see the dean. We had a meeting with the dean. And uh, and I was like, in the meeting with the dean, I just decided right then and there, you know, sort of a snap decision. I'm like, I'm quitting. I don't want to be here. And, of course, they spent a long time trying to convince me to stay, but I was I was quite set on not finishing law school. So I uh, took a year off and parked cars at the Radisson and climbed, you know, what Uh I really wanted to be doing. And then uh, got my master's in creative writing at the University of Texas. Right on. That's what happened to my law (laughs) degree. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It seemed like a pertinent question. I I just had to ask. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you this about, um, you know, as you're getting into climbing and you're quote unquote developing these, these local little cliffs that are around when you're first beginning. So how did you figure out how to do it? I mean, you know, it's like, I think a lot of people who become climbers, they have some concept. I mean, I know when I've, I sort of started bolting things like for instance, in, uh, in Canada and the ghost river, I spent some summers up there bolting, uh, big roots, you know, like five, six, seven pitch roots, kind of like what you're doing in Potrero. And, you know, even after having climbed for, you know, probably 12, 13, 14 years, as I started to look at, okay, how am I going to do this? It took me a long time to sort of like put my head around, well, you know, the, the age old question of how do those bolts get up there? You know, which is something nobody ever thinks about, but everybody just assumes somebody did something to make sure they were there. And, even an experienced climber, because I was, you know, I'd done big walls. I mean, I'd climbed El Cap and all those sorts of things. And it was still like this moment of like, well, 
okay, so am I going to start down here at the bottom? Am I going to go up to the top? And, you know, since it's not a one-pitch climb, am I going to, how am I going to, if I'm going to repel the whole thing, like, how am I going to place bolts? Am I going to use a power drill? I mean, all these sorts of things. So where, how did you and these cohorts of yours, you know, figure it out? Yeah, well, that's a... You, know, you got to understand that in, in 1977 in Texas, mm-hmm. there was just nothing, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no instruction and, right. and, and very little gear to get, right? So we just uh, learned climbing by trial and error. <laughs> and, and that's not, you know, definitely not recommended. But, uh, you know, we just went to Kmart, I think, and we bought a rope. It was a ski tow rope. And uh, we found some things that appeared to be like... Uh, carabiners, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there were pieces of plows and stuff like uh, big chain links and things. And we tied our own swamis and we went to a uh, trestle that was uh, by Owens. There's an Owens Country Sausage. It's like a famous sausage down in Texas. And there's a big railroad trestle by there. And we just made it up, man, on our own. We just totally rigged the thing from uh, Robin's Basic Rock Craft. We mm-hmm. had that. And, and uh, we said, oh, this kind of looks like a carabiner break. Uh, thing and we wrapped off a 60 so foot trestle. Like where did you find some bros? <laughs> well, uh, the, my first partner was this guy, Keith Wright, who um, he, he gave a report in a class on having found a cave system under Plano. It was complete fabrication, you know, a complete lie. And uh, I was like, you know, this guy seems like he'd be a good partner for my climbing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man, we just kind of uh, bought ropes and tied swamis with these ropes and and made it up. I clearly remember we bought Brooks tennis shoes because they had black soles on them. We're like, oh, those look like climbing shoes. And so yeah, it was uh it was complete trial and error and we learned to climb on a trestle and some shale cliffs and a lot of it we we kind of would just read something in you know Dougal Hassan's book in high places he climbed on a railroad trestle so that's where we got oh. the idea you know he kind of trained on a trestle and and then we found these uh spikes there are railroad spikes that they used to to attach the rails to the the railroad ties and sometimes there would be leftover ones next to the the you know tracks and we would uh then go down to these shale cliffs and and we would hammer those spikes into the shale and use them as hand and footholds okay and we would start from the bottom but we had no protection there was no running belay or anything we would just solo up to the top and when you got to the top you would Dig your heels in real good, you know, at the top of these 40, 50 foot cliffs and you'd bring up your bro with a hip belay. I mean, literally. On first, like on mom's like clothesline. Yeah, totally. Like on, nylon clothesline mm-hmm, from the yeah, hardware store. I remember we would carefully look at Kmart's, you know, selection of ski ropes and things and pick the one that most looked like. like water skiing. Water right. skiing. Yeah, totally. You know, we like, oh, this looks like the gold line that we saw, you know, was Robin's. Recommended. I mean, it was that, like, for a couple of years, that sketch. Right. Mm-hmm. And even uh, even when we started to go to real climbing areas, like uh, the Wichita's, we were completely making it up. I remember uh, one of the first climbs that I did was in Enchanted Rock, and, and it was a thing called Can Opener. I think it was, uh, it was like 5'9 or something. And, uh, 
And for Christmas, I had gotten a set of hexes, all just one set, right? And and this was a continuous number three, like three inch crack, basically. And uh, yeah, so I had one hex that I just kind of worked up the crack as we went and got to a certain point, decided to leave it behind and, and just went for it. And, and that was like, that was it. Every Christmas we'd get like a rope or a set of hexes or some EBs, you know, it would kind of slowly build our rack like that. But yeah, it was, it was just kind of seat of the pants. Yeah. In the seventies. Yeah, seventy seven is when I started. Holy cow! But but it would have probably been like a time warp to where where you guys were. I mean, you just said EBs. It was probably like the sixties in terms of <laughs> in terms of gear. Yeah, I yeah, mean, well, you know, like Plano, Texas. Like, where could you possibly find climbing gear? Yeah, no, there, there was no no place. There was one place called Mountain Hideout that uh, sold outdoor gear, and mm-hmm. and we just completely. Uh, hung out there and became the most annoying nuisance to these two guys. Larry Freshour and Jackson Willingham was the other guy that ran the store. And we would just come in there and just talk incessantly about climbing to these guys. And you know, they knew a little bit, mm-hmm. but a lot more than us. And, you know, eventually they, they kind of steered us in the right direction and helped us get gear and, you know, would talk to our parents and, and get us a rope or, you know, whatever. So, yeah. So you just gradually, like everybody else, got tuned into what you're supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. um, and you ended up in Austin. And like I said, you were you were uh, developing stuff down in Mexico with with all these other guys. But you know, there's the thing about like Petrero and and some of the stuff down there is is even early on, you guys had kind of a I think more of a European attitude towards developing this like you know ground up sort of sport area and when i mean ground up i don't mean climbing from the ground but you know you guys went down there and and with the intent of you know this is going to be you know multi-pitch bolted roots we're not gonna we're not gonna futz around with with uh trying to make a traditional or anything else but and that was quite you know early in the whole scene down there Mm -hmm. so how did you guys end up like finding out about potrero well uh uh, Dwayne raleigh the publisher of rock and ice uh um, long time, you know, writer and publisher. I guess it was probably late seventies, early eighties, maybe mid eighties. Took a trip down to uh, Wasteca, and there was an unclimbed spire there. There's a aid route that was basically a bolt ladder that some guys put up on a uh, fifteen hundred foot spire called Independencia, hmm. and uh, and they went down there and. Um, basically got robbed a couple of times by the police. This is a great right. Dwayne story. You should definitely have him on. Uh, <laughs> that was a good story. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I just, just peaked He's my been shot at too. Correct. Yeah, I, that was his story too. That was, was my you? story. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Been, okay. Anyway, I've been shot at a couple of times, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, learn to climb in Texas on a lot of private land, you know, uh, enough said, <laughs> But uh, uh, Dwayne's story about these these giant spires um, and and limestone cliffs piqued my interest. And so I had uh, clued in my buddy Alex Catlin to these this Huasteca place. He went down there and checked it out. And while he was there and there was an established climbing scene there at the time, there's some pretty cool stuff in Huasteca, which is a, a big wilderness area. 
of uh, giant limestone canyons and spires and things. It has the the disadvantage of being um, very close to a kind of a barrio neighborhood, Santa Catarina in Monterrey. So when you're saying like uh, a local climbing scene, you're talking about actual local Mexicans? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, local Mexicans uh, went down there and they, you know, there's some badasses there. This guy Juan de Dios was his name, John of God. Yeah, that's an awesome name. <laughs> he, uh, he did Independencia. They, they, he right. did the first ascent of Independencia with like three carabiners, no shit. I think he had like three carabiners and some rope, and mm-hmm. they, those guys got out this 1,500-foot spire. So that piqued my interest. I told Alex about it, and he visited there. And while he was there, some locals came to him and said, you know, he, ha- he asked them, is there other areas? And they said, well, there's this one other area. It's called El Potrero Chico, and, but it's not very good. It doesn't have good cracks, and it's mm-hmm. all overhanging. Yeah. So he's like, take me there. So Alex called me uh, from the Potrero. And this is before cell phones, of course. He called me from down in town. He's like, F.A., come check this out. I I got a kid, Jeff Fineros, a young kid. And we we went down there and through several misadventures, we found the Potrero as well a few days after Alex. And and it was amazing. And so the style that the roots went up in the Potrero – was kind of a hybrid sport. You know, we wouldn't call it sport today because uh, we had such limited gear. We would go to the hardware store and we would buy 12 bolts, you know, and, and we were going down there to climb five pitch roots or whatever. So can you generally uh, put a time frame on this year wise? Yeah, that would have been soon after like 80 Eight, okay, eighty-eight to eighty-nine, right. ninety, something like that. Right. Yeah. So as I've sort of pointed out on the show before, it's like you know, sport climbing in the U.S. didn't even probably really almost exist at that point in the in the late eighties. You know, that's when that's when Smith Rock was being developed, and there were still still contentious fist fights and things over bolting. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I guess that was my point earlier was that you guys were sort of a little bit ahead of the curve and thinking like, okay, here's some European style limestone, certainly having looked at the magazines and probably been more than versed in all that sort of stuff. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So you guys were lived by the magazines. Right. That's what that was our that was our connection to to what was up. You know, I mean, when you're in the hinterlands, you know, as you as you termed it, uh, your connection to the scene is through the magazine. So Mm -hmm. that's all. I've always been pretty avid reader of the mags. And, you know, at the time it was. It was more about uh, not so much about difficulty still. It was more about, you know, uh, having the balls to run it out on 510. And mm-hmm. So we would do these routes and they would be quite run out. And most of them have been retro bolted. But, yeah, you know, everything was on lead, on site kind of making our way up and if we could have got to the top then we probably would have but you know these are huge cliffs and we just had to go ground up so earlier we were talking about other development that you had pushed down in mexico so you guys got away from the petrar chico i mean that's what everybody knows about because um i think i think the area around that is stable enough even still although they've had some problems down there um even this year but for whatever reason, it seemed like there's there was enough sort of infrastructure and, and a place 
where climbers could gather um, to make that place really popular. Um, while it seems like there's a lot of kind of far away, even further away places in Mexico awaiting development, awaiting discovery by climbers. Um, but some of them, there's been a smattering of work done, and it sounds like you, you got out into those lands as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the 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 reason that Petreo Chico kind of went off, it, it can be just summarized by saying that, that Omero, uh, Omero Gutierrez Villarreal was, uh, was hugely instrumental in that because when we first came down, we would camp under a little pavilion right in the middle of everywhere. And uh, each night, people would come just to talk to us. They would they would want to wake us up like the the first shift of police would come at midnight and they would wake us up and just talk. You know, they'd want to talk, share beers Two three o'clock. The next shift would get on and they would come and they would talk <laughs> to us as well. Like aliens that had landed yeah, there. It was yeah. pretty. They were pretty tripped out at the whole thing. Like, uh-huh. you know, and they liked it, too. They're definitely they liked it a lot. They, it's kind of this macho thing. I, I remember bringing a uh, Ryobi gas-powered drill to the Virgin Wall for the first trip that I took there, and I was concerned as to what would happen, you know, when I fired that sucker up. I mean, there's a statue to the Virgin Mary right below there, and people mm-hmm. down there kind of, you know, it's a religious site, man. Right. So I was concerned, but when I cranked the thing up, you know, just kind of, like, came on and uh down below everybody just raised their arms and was like yeah <laughs> they loved climbers it was right. great to see because right. you know as you said i've been shot at and and basically ostracized by people for climbing in texas mm-hmm. you know it was just really kind of a negative experience in a way but in mexico they loved it and omero uh found out that we were camping we, we eventually moved our campsite to the uh the nacimiento the the spring head to the spring mm-hmm. that feeds the town and we were just kind of camping in the mud up there kind of a few miles past the walls and he one night saw him saw us at uh the um the deposito there just buying some beers and said you guys need to come down and you can stay at my house mm-hmm. and i was like just picturing you know 12 mexicans and the whole family and everybody in there and then all of my dirtbag friends kind of crash in the house and i was like no that's okay he's like no no you have to come you must come you just must come he told us where it was. And so we packed up our stuff and we went down to what is now Omero's. Like the same place. Yeah, the same little campground right Right. there. But at the time, it was just like a party house that him and his brothers had. And when we walked in, there was the table, the island in the middle of the kitchen was just piled with food. They'd been grilling. They had like vegetables and fruit and guacamole and everything. And it was this massive massive party that they had and they're like this is your house whenever you come just stop by my house i will give you the key and you can stay here yeah because a lot of those places up there are are sort of the second homes and the little hangouts that's right. people who actually live in town mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. least that's the way it was now a lot of them are, are guest houses and right stuff. campgrounds they, mm-hmm. yeah but uh this was this was the the what did they call it um Quinta Santa Graciela. 
and it was it was named after his mom who had who had died and they built that there and it was kind of a a shrine slash party house that they would go to and all the brothers would grill at and and it then soon became the kind of ad hoc campground for what turned into quite a scene you know mm-hmm. there would be people there all the time during the winter season uh you know i wrote a couple of articles for you know climbing rock and ice whatever and and uh people started to show up and and eventually i had to go to omero and i said omero you need to start charging people to stay here and uh and he did and and that's basically where the the infrastructure for climbing started is mm-hmm. is through this great gift and complete open-hearted opening of their house to right. climbers right yeah, they were psyched on it. So yeah, and, and then uh, eventually we uh, we kind of uh, explored that region and and went all over the Potrero and and then wanted to kind of broaden our horizons. And so one of the things we did, kind of the culmination uh, of all that exploration, was a a formation that you can see off the highway uh, Highway Fifty Three. It's called La Popa, and uh, it's the Cerro Gavilan. It's a it's a giant um, north-facing wall that, uh, you know, it's bigger than the diamond. It's about a thousand feet tall. And, you know, I, I had uh, I'd done Sendero. I'd been to, um, been to Proboscis and done that. And, and uh, that was like 1994, 1995. And in 1997, I kind of wanted to explore, you know, true difficulty in sport climbing. And so um, I asked the brothers about it, and and uh, they said that uh, this place. Who are the brothers? This is uh, Omero and and Emilio, okay, and all the Gutierrez Villarreal's, the the brothers there, mm-hmm. uh, Mario and and uh, Victor, and all those dudes. I think there were seven brothers, and we used to party quite often like every night they would be at the quinta santa graciela to like drink beers and party sometimes it was a little much you'd climb all day long and you'd get there and those the brothers would be there ready to just throw down and uh and so they said you know one night we were we were talking and and uh omero started to describe this place it's like the the gavilan and um it's in los remotos a little little tiny town in the middle of nowhere, the remotes is what it was called. And he said, you know, so there's a big wall there. It's overhanging. It's north facing. It's shaded. But there's strange things that happen in the desert there. I was like, what kind of strange things? And uh, one of the brothers, uh, his name was Gilberto. Gilberto. He was driving a, a truck. It was a trash truck or something i can't remember some kind of no it was a waste it was a waste dump some kind of a waste truck he had to wear like a full uniform is it was industrial waste right and uh he said sometimes at night there's a little green men that run next to the truck (laughs) (laughs) out there and i was like that sounds kind of strange so you know i was like i still want to check it out and um and they're like, well, okay, be careful because there's the momias de Monterrey. And I was like, well, what are they? And they're like, this is their mummies that walk at night out there. <laughs> I said, I still want to go. So we drove out there. <laughs> we we looked at the wall. It was amazing, man. It was like, this is this is the place for the project. And so 
we went out there and we found a guy named Luciano. And uh, Luciano was a hermit and he lived in a cave that he had dug out of the side of a mud arroyo. No shit. And uh, he like cooked on a fire and he was, his hands were like the skin of lizards. You know, he was tough, as tough as could be. He borrowed his uncle's burrow and we drove uh, like... 10 gallons of water and all of our stuff up to the the camp and close to the base of the wall. And um, and he left us. And it felt like the middle of nowhere. It was like, you know, we were in Los Remotos. We were two hours and 45 minutes from a hermit's hovel in the wall of an arroyo. That was it. And so we're like cooking up our, our meal. And we like... My friend Benji, Ben Fink is who I was with and another Austin climber. And he's like, turn your headlamp off. It's like, what the, what is that? I'm like, turn, we turn our light, our heads, headlamps off and the whole slope is covered with lights, like different kind of weird lights, man. We had these, like, we had our, our binoculars and we started to focus in on one of the lights and it looked like, People holding lanterns were walking all over the slopes of this mountain, like in the middle in Los Remotos. And it's strange people, too, like big heads, like strange, weird heads holding lanterns. And it was really couldn't tell because a fog had come in. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, uh, so we freaked out and we hid in the rocks. This is how freaked out we were. We hid in the rocks all night long. We like huddled in our down jackets hiding and totally for, Oh yeah. And the other thing is, is we heard voices like whispering kind of voices in Spanish. So the next morning we got up and uh, scanned the slope with the binoculars and there were no people, but the slope was covered in horses. So we did the trip. We started on the route. It was turned out to be sick. This is totally sick route. Leo Holdings tried it. A couple of different people have, have tried the route still unrepeated. And uh, we got a few pitches up and we went back down and we like, you know, the brothers were there, of course. And we started telling them like, what's going on? And, and they're like, oh, they turned to horses. It's the Naguales. And it's people that are like part man, part horse and turn from like horses to people. At night, they turned to people. I was like, shit, I still want to do the route, you know. So, yeah, we went back and, and uh, every so often when climactic conditions are right, and other people have seen this too, their lights appear on the slopes. There's been another one other route that's been put up there by uh, Rodney Blackman is one of the guys, Alvino Ponds. And they said that uh, when they were bivying on the wall, they had a light that came and they called it the visitor. And it came and like would just come up towards them and then like, pull back and this is true not making this shit up but anyway we put up a uh, nine pitch route and um it, it was it was completely sick it took uh three years of efforts to do it was really? uh, yeah it was a toughie is like um every pitch was 512 and there was uh there's three pitches of 513 and like hard 512 like steep overhanging tufa climbing and still, still there in the desert, waiting for a second ascent. Really? Yeah. It's just sitting there. Just sitting there with all these weird things around it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Man, that sounds like an adventure. Just to repeat a repeater route. <laughs> Did Bishrad go? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Andrew, right. Andrew Boone Speed and um, Dan Mursky went out there and and tried for a repeat, but uh, they got kind of hosed by the weather. It was like terrible weather, and, uh-huh. and um, they were not psyched on the anchors that we had put up there. We'd would like, I mean, we were dirtbags, man. We did what we had to. We like took some. Um, chain link and we like just without hangers hammered bolts into the chain link and it's it's a bomber but yeah if you're used to climbing I do that all the time yeah there you go yeah yeah and this so, yeah. Yeah, that's not totally that. bomber this totally bomber yeah but yeah and and also the weather was super cold and also right. they found the peyote and <laughs> you know, enough said yeah. right and then they started seeing weird lights they started the seeing the weird lights right yeah mm-hmm. did they meet the lizard hand guy Oh yeah, yeah. The Luciano to this day is still living out he's there. Still there. Yeah, and he took their stuff up. And I mean, he's he's a badass. He's like a desert hardened, complete badass. When we, we we drove up there, there was Luciano, his brother Geronimo, and another brother Gilberto were there. And uh, yeah, they they looked like they were like risen from the dead. Kind of. It was it was crazy, man. Those guys. Hard, hard individuals. Mm-hmm. But uh, Gilberto and Geronimo left, and now it's just Luciano. Does Luciano know about the uh, the horse people? You know, it was, it was tough to communicate with Luciano because he spoke kind of a grunting Spanish that uh, was difficult for me to decipher. You know, I'm not great at Spanish. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time there, and some people would say they were fluent. I'm not naive enough to think that I'm fluent in Spanish, but I still couldn't understand Luciano a lot. But, uh, yeah, it was quite an adventure. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of people have been stopped by the peyote. It's just abundant out there. <laughs> Apparently, Leo got stopped uh, by the peyote as sure. well. Sure. No, I remember being in Petrero and somebody's showing up with a giant garbage bag full of it. Mm-hmm. Like huge buttons. Well, that was the, actually come to think of it, the, the first time I saw El Gavilan, which is also called La Popa because it, it looks like a, a ship, mm-hmm. like the poop deck of a ship, you know, like right. the backside of a ship, sure. like an overhanging ship's prow. The first time I saw the feature, um, I was with Emilio, who is a brother of uh, Omero, and he's deaf. He's completely deaf. And he, uh, he took us out to get a sack of peyote. I was like, you know, is it okay? Is it like all right to pick peyote. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, yeah. You kind of said, indicated that it was fine, you know. But when we got out there, we were gathering peyote. We had a giant burlap bag full of peyote. And and Emilio noticed that a car was coming and he just kind of ran for it. He ran back to the car and we like, we're like, "Oh, oh God, like we ran after him and got in the car. But obviously... He, it was not okay. We had no idea. And <laughs> we passed some federales coming up the road, and apparently it's not okay to have peyote. You know, I, I had a, a buddy down there, too, that had, yeah, he got put in jail and the whole thing. And in yeah. one of those weird sort of turn of events, they let him go. He doesn't know why because he didn't speak Spanish either. But it was like not just federales, but other guys, you know, in, in cahoots. And his tires all got shot out. And not only did they let him go for some reason, but they replaced his tires as well. They what? took, yeah, they took his wheels off, took them in, put, got new tires, and put on them like 
and he still doesn't know why. Like huh. if they thought he was somebody important that they shouldn't have fucked with or That's but impressive. Yeah. He he went from the depths of like complete and utter despair that he was gonna disappear into some either hole in the ground or some prison somewhere to like them patting him on the back and basically saying lo siento and sending him on his way like over yeah. 24 hours yeah that's yeah, and they that's were out gathering peyote same thing mm. so yeah well we we ran for it and got away i don't know that there's a big peyote market though is there well the 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 funny thing is is when we got back and we had our sack of peyote and we were so psyched about it we went to bed and we're like we're gonna trip tomorrow Woo-hoo! we got up the next morning the brothers had taken the peyote and they had chopped it up and put it into bottles with rubbing alcohol because they thought that what we wanted it for and what they use it for is a liniment that soothes sore muscles. Oh, so they had like course. taken all of our peyote and destroyed it in rubbing alcohol. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Well, well, the night I was there, they made margs out of it. Oh, ground it up in a blender and made margar really, really bitter, awful margarita. Yeah. It's a horrible taste is maybe the worst taste. Right. It's kind of like, kerosene wrapped in tinfoil mm. uh, our friend our friend Danny though Robertson saw Chupacabra that night though oh nice yeah, he'll, he'll swear actually attack them so. <laughs> you have to be determined to, to really get off on peyote you have right. to eat a lot of it and deal with the horrible stomach and yeah it's, yeah no nothing happened to me I just sipped at a margarita and like, yeah, just tasted awful. Mm-hmm. So to round this out, and we, we've been talking a while here, but it's totally awesome. So you kind of said in the beginning that like you guys were forced to put up new roots and just make your own way. But in a lot of ways, it seems to have become like this way of life for you in terms of your climbing career. I guess I don't know you well enough to know if you've spent huge amounts of times at developed climbing areas. But since I've known you, like I said, in the beginning of the show, like you basically put up new routes and you find cliffs and you develop them. And is it just out of this, like having trained yourself to do that? Or do you think there's something about your personality that says, I want to explore these things? I mean, was it the Dougal Haston book, you know, still floating around in your brain, these guys that were, were around in the sixties where, there were weren't really climbs to repeat. I mean, there were a few, but you know, you could look off across the mountain range in the Alps and and realize that that all that was waiting to be climbed. And it, and, and as sort of a side question, like in the seventies and even the eighties, a lot of rock, and especially in Texas, but you know, and in Mexico, was like that. You know, it was like those guys in the Alps in the fifties and sixties. You you were looking out at a canvas of emptiness that you could do whatever you wanted. Now you live in a state where, you know, you're having to kind of definitely find your own little, little corner of paradise to put up your roots. So mm-hmm. can you comment on like what, what you maybe have observed about yourself or your personality that, that draws you into wanting to do new roots? Oh yeah, sure. Well, you know, I, I mean, at first, of course, it was just making routes to climb because I wanted to climb. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a choice of, you know, do you want to climb or do you not want to climb, basically? And so, yeah, you know, that that started it off. And then, um, you know, I'll never forget in that hot tub we were talking about earlier at, at Mount Proboscis, you know, at, at Warren Lefebvre's 
in Canoe Lodge on the way to Proboscis when Kurt and Kurt Smith, Scott Cosgrove, and I uh, put up a new route on Proboscis back in ninety. Five or something? Yeah, that was about right. Yeah. What did you guys end up calling that? That's called Yukon Tears. Right, okay. Yukon Tears. And uh, yeah, back then, I remember sitting in a hot tub and and just kind of talking about our game plan for that trip. And Cosgrove said, you know, I, I talked to Jim Bridwell, and I'll never forget his, his line, and it was, never come this far and pay this much money to repeat somebody's route. And... And I was like, huh, that makes a lot of sense. We should do our, our own new route. And, you know, that has kind of become uh, a quote that's resonated with me, even on a smaller scale. Because as you start to, to do new routes, you start to find that you're, you're encountering and, and interacting with the rock on a much more intimate level. I mean, you're dealing with the rock in its wildest state and its most untouched state. And so uh, that process of, of developing a line of, of making a new climb involves interacting with it on a micro level. You're like, you're cleaning the holds. You're first envisioning the path. There's a vision there that you might have. And then you're seeing that vision through different stages. That's, you know, akin to creating a work of art. And I don't really want to get, you know, too kind of airy here with right. calling climbing art, mm-hmm. but in a, in a way it is kind of like an art project or some kind of a craft. There's a craft to it. That's very addictive. You know, some people, they, they write poems. Some people write songs. Some people, you know, do paper mache pinatas. But for me, it's like a creating roots, you mm-hmm. know, and it, it really is deep within me. And to the extent that it, you know, it almost is like an art form. Mm-hmm. You know, I write and, and writing is, you know, I can see parallels between creating a story and creating a root. You know, in an interview I posted with Randy Levitt, he talked about how a lot of times when he's putting up a route, you know, it's for himself, but he also sort of thinks about whether or not other people are going to want to climb this climb. And that, especially with sport climbing, it seemed like he talked about crafting it in a way that he thought would be, you know, fun, be interesting to other people in terms of adding little runouts, he says, or, or things like that. Like when he was in the VRG, even on really hard climbs. And I was wondering like kind of how important is that to you? The idea of, of people coming back and, and climbing the climbs that you've put up. Yeah. It's always in the, in the back of your mind, creating a, a safe route. You know, I've been climbing a lot at the narrows, which is uh, just close to my house now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a big granite crag. It's a big wild granite crag with a lot of loose rock. So I, I you know, I'll look at, at lines that seem to be safe and then I'll come down and I'll really very, uh, very carefully clean off the loose rock and I'll clean off the rock that's above the root. And 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 that's all for other people. You know, I'm really thinking about other people's experience when I do that. Right. But in the past, I've also climbed at areas that are on private land and will probably not see very many people climb there. And I've been just as motivated in, in the Terry of Colorado 
amazing bouldering and things there that that uh, you know I spent whole summers developing and uh, outside of Austin in an area of Flat Creek that the amazing overhanging limestone big caves and things sport climbs that uh, a few people will enjoy but it's definitely not going to be the motivation I should say was not. Uh, because other people will do this route. It was, uh-huh. it was a pure motivation. I just wanted the experience of, of crafting a route, and it was enough for me to do that and climb it. Same thing with Los Remotos. I mean, it's not a destination area. I've never written a story about that. I've, I've never talked publicly about that. Well, there's going to be lines now. The Enormal <laughs> Cast has got quite a wide net. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Good. I think there should be. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so it's a mixture. I definitely do... Uh, try to craft things, keeping in mind the experience of others. And, and, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're privileged to come top down on a line, then, you know, it's incumbent on you to think about what the experience is going to be for those who are on siding at bottom up. Sure. You, know, you can't really, uh, in good faith, um, bolt contrived runouts into that because you know where the holds are you know where the solutions are and so yeah there is a a definite consideration for other people in all of the routes that i do Mm -hmm. so you know i was thinking too about i'm somebody in the in between where i've put up roots um i've gotten really excited about certain areas uh and put a lot of work into to putting up climbs but it's not I'm definitely now like you for whom it's kind of seems to be a primary motivation. I think about, you know, I asked you about reading that Dougal Hassan book and, and I'm also pretty sort of steeped in the history. And it is exciting to me to think about how those guys had those broad open canvases, you know, to where there were that many climbs to repeat. Or, you know, do you think about peaks in the Alps where the ridges had been climbed and then there was these empty faces in between that? that nobody had dared to challenge. And I guess it seems like maybe for you, you know, Mexico was sort of that canvas at first. Is that safe to assume to, to think about like all those, those open big walls down there that you were driving by on the highway? Yeah. You know, it, it's uh, the weird thing is, is that everywhere I go, I seem to find rock. You know, I, when I showed up here, I, we lived about eight miles up the frying pan. Right. And uh, there's the frying pan crag and uh, you know, it's it's sick. That's a great crag, and mm-hmm. I cannot believe that it's not developed. But there's a you have to walk an hour up the hill, uh-huh. and um, I think that you know the golden age is right now. If you're willing to to look around, the reason that I'm at the Narrows right now is I have two young kids. You know, I have a two year old and a five year old, and I need something that I can uh, you know basically climb at someplace I can climb at. And uh, and get my fix from 12 to about six, you know, bedtime. So that crag in particular is just it's convenient and close. But as it turns out, it's been an amazing experience. So much adventure there Mm -hmm. coming uh, coming over the tops of those climbs is I've never uh, I don't believe ever in my experience in the greater ranges, you know, Canada, Mexico, wherever have I had such challenging like, you know, scenarios where I have to get into the good rock. You know, you're going through incredible bands of choss and, you know, risking a whole lot to get to these things. And it's, it's a huge adventure. Even, I mean, right sometimes, there. even sometimes you forget the drill. 
<laughs> you can tell about when I got stranded. That's though. where I come in. Yeah. So Chris has been uh, has been sort of the henchman in some of these routes at the Narrows. That's actually why I asked you to join us. But uh, and just to put this in perspective, and I want to hear this story. But the Narrows are uh, it's a, it's kind of a seemingly roadside crag here in in the Roaring Fork Valley, and definitely not something that's you know going to pop into everybody's head. Uh, right away as like destination climbing. And so it's interesting to me to hear you. Yeah, this is, this is comparable to some of the graded ranges, but, uh, go ahead, Chris. What were you going to say? Oh, no, no. I was just saying that, uh, you know, we've, it is adventurous in, in a, in a very, uh, different way. Um, and we've had our own adventures putting up these routes, helping Hefe put up these routes. And, uh, yeah, we've had some, some, Close uh, calls, I'd say. Well, we always got out of it, but uh. well, I mean, it's these are big. These are actually pretty big cliffs. Like <laughs> you can't, uh, you can you can wrap in. You're gonna have to wrap a full rope length. I'm not talking half a rope where you can retrieve your rope. I'm talking seventy meters to get to a ledge, and then you have to have your buddy, in this case, Chris untie the rope and just drop it right and then you're you're stranded it's on terrifying. a ledge completely <laughs> completely surrounded by choss you know with no anchors nothing mm. except for the drill you know the drill is your you can do a lot with a with a Bosch drill and and a can of PC7 uh, in one case and Chris is this is what Chris is talking about is is uh we got to the top very excited wrapped in i said when i wrap in just untie the rope. When I yell up, just untie the rope and drop it to me. And so I wrapped in, excited, quickly, yelled up, cut the rope. The rope falls down. Suddenly I realize I have no drill. All I have is a gri-gri and one carabiner. <laughs> Badger and I, just dog, Badger and I are on top of the cliff just freaking out at yeah. this point. Because I, I like pulled up enough slack to know that he was he was telling me to take, you know, cut the rope. So I untied the rope, let it go. And as soon as I let it go, I look to my left and I see his bag of kit right there. It's <laughs> his drill, his bolts, everything he needed to get down because you know it's not a rope length you know it's he's stranded on in chaucimity yeah completely completely <laughs> chaucid you know 70 meters above the the ground and uh but we made it out and uh you know that's another story what did you do you have to tell what did you do <laughs> well i did i uh it was the magic it was the magic rope yeah, we had this we had this <laughs> rope that Dwayne had loaned us, DR, and um we weren't sure how long it was, but I uh I was standing on a ledge. It was a fairly safe spot, but I remembered that I had drilled a directional bolt uh maybe a hundred feet up and to the right. And so I soloed up some bad loose blocks, made it, psyched, got there, tied the rope off, and when I was able to throw it down, I kinda down climb back to the ledge that I was on and was able to throw it down up into a gully and the rope just barely reached the ground. And Chris was able to come back around to the ground and send up the drill. All right. Yes. Yeah. So all those years of experience. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, cool. You guys, thanks a lot. I mean, we're actually been going for about an hour here and, uh, 
it didn't quite go the direction that I had planned, but this is fantastic. So, you know, I invited these guys in here because I wanted to talk about first doing first ascents. And clearly, you know, not only have you been interested in doing first ascents, Jeff, but I think it seems like thinking about what you've been talking about for an hour that, you know, it's not just about the roots, but the fact that it's where it takes you into these kind of places nobody's been before. And you have to sort of make it up as you're going, whether it's it's meeting up with the guy who lived in the Arroyo cave and figuring that out to do what was his name luciano 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 or even dealing with this little cliff on the side of the road i mean it's definitely like a uh when i started reading about climbing you know that idea of exploration was really exciting to me and i think most people and myself included most of the time are are happy with sort of this exploration that even if the route's been done before, I haven't been up there before. And so you get that feeling of climbing up into some place that at least you haven't been before. But for you, it's like, it seems as though it's something where you're drawn to go up in these places that nobody's been before. And to me, it's a really interesting thing that with rock climbing, you know, you can pretty much sure be sure that nobody has set foot in these places before. It's not like, a hundred years ago, some pioneer walked past or whatever. But when you're up on the side of a cliff, I mean, no human being has set foot foot in the in that in that place before. I mean, it seems to be a draw. Uh, am I wrong? I mean, is that some some sort of draw for you to be to be finding these places and these these nuanced little corridors that nobody's ever set foot in? Yeah, absolutely. You know, just uh, just recently, within the last couple of years, we. We've been exploring more kind of in the back country, like the Crystal Tower, uh-huh. you know, that that area that's uh, outside of Marble, right. that, that whole area there. And and what you find is um, that when you do enter these little corridors, these little places that people haven't been yet, that there's rock everywhere, and that the the adventure and the possibility for adventure is there. And at the same time, you know, you were asking whether I've I've climbed a lot at established areas, and I have. You know, I've spent a lot of time at Rifle, and I totally yeah, understand I've never that. seen you there. <laughs> no, I haven't spent any recent time there, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, back when Rifle was, was just being developed. When it was being developed. Yeah. Yeah, you but were I, there you then. Know, I, I was climbing other people's routes. Okay. You know, I have I've, I've, Yosemite and and all those places. I've definitely cut my teeth and and spent time mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. And and there's a there's qu- quite a great draw to that as well. And and the adventure is can be just as great, obviously, uh, when you're repeating routes as as when you're establishing routes. It can be an amazing experience. But at the same time, for me personally, the uh, the greatest gift and the most fun is when I'm someplace that's completely wild and has not been, you know, tread by humans and not been climbed yet. And you're dealing with the loose rock and the unknown to a large extent. That's that's the real draw. And that's what I get off on. All right. Well, thank you guys for, for sitting down for the normal cast. I really appreciate it in the new studio. I think we're going to go ahead and, and play some music now. Is that right? Sounds good. Yeah, let's do it. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed it. What do you want to tune to? A knee.
good. Ready What's this called? Mistakes. Nice. Let's do it. All right, cool.
sec. <laughs> Pair of wings and nine packs. 
that much closer to you.